Hello, my name's Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Today I'll be continuing my conversation with Jason Gallion from Weather FX. We'll be discussing a couple of his projects and looking in depth at his techniques and doing dailies and getting the most out of your team, as well as what you need to do to be successful in high-level meetings. Alrighty, let's get into it. Welcome back, Jason. Have you got your beer and your ice cream? Are you ready to go? <laughs> Heaps. <laughs> Heaps. You all good? Let's go. Can you describe a good lighting reel? Subtlety. Drawing your eye to the right place. In lighting, context, and mood. Building the right atmosphere. You can tell, you know, you can tell by looking at uh, a lighter's reel or a shot, uh, the story they're trying to tell, to know the difference between practical lighting and cinematic lighting. Like if there's, if you're doing a hotel room and there's a a lamp shade there, you know, on the side of the bed, a lighter will put a light inside the light bulb and make the the lampshade uh, translucent and illuminate the warm light through the uh, through the bedroom and pat themselves on the back. You know that's obvious. Yeah. A next level lighter will look at what's happening in the scene, put maybe a bright light outside the window to draw your eye over there, maybe to silhouette a character that's walking in front of it. You know, doing telling a story and and accompanying and highlighting the story through the lighting that isn't necessarily the practical way that it would be lit if, it, if you just happened upon this scene and lit in real life to make choices that still work cinematically. That's what I'm looking for. What are you looking for in like a, a look dev person? You're going to kind of want to show the, uh, the raw model um, versus the uh, versus the palette or the shader. Yeah. And then what I would look for is showing it in different lighting contexts, lighting conditions. I think if you show one turntable in a studio light rig and it looks great there, that's all well and good and important. But will it hold up in a feature film in different settings in, in night, in interior, exterior? Yeah. That sort of shows the robustness of the uh, of the shader. What was the experience like traveling as a VFX artist in your early career? And what were the biggest challenges you had to overcome in that period? I would say culture shock in a good and a bad way. Moving to the different cities and countries and possibly languages. But also every facility has a culture and every department within that facility has a subculture. And you have to learn how to navigate and operate in all of them. Um, And I think... Uh, one thing you have to learn in visual effects is how to enter a new company with a new culture and know that you're bringing your baggage from the last studio and your familiarity with your previous pipeline to a new unfamiliar pipeline and to be able to learn the new pipeline without trying to force your own pre-existing ideas onto this new studio that's new to you, but that's not new to everybody that's already working there. You know you might be able to do it better because the other studio did it better, but don't rush in and explain. Yeah, I find that a lot of times when I see new artists come to a studio that I'm at, especially experienced artists, they come with a preconceived notion that they know how to do things better because they were very successful at their last studio 
which yep. is most likely true. Uh, but really what's happening is that they are taking what they're familiar with and thinking that's a better way to do it as opposed to something they're unfamiliar with, which to them seems more challenging way to do it because they don't know it yet. Yeah. Um, they just haven't climbed the, the learning curve yet. And I think that's a very common problem, and I'm sure I've done it too. But I think knowing and being aware of that and that you will have a learning curve and that people are not going to buy into your ideas of your old studio at the new studio without a very good reason to. Tell us about an interesting project uh, you worked on at Giant Killer Robots, and what did you learn from that? When I first started there, the first project I was asked to work on was a movie called Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. There were two shots. One was the last shot of the movie, this uh, kind of nuclear apocalypse of, uh, of a snowstorm of, of ash with the the Terminator eye going off. But the other one yep. was a uh, was a single line in the script. And it was one shot that was filmed of the female Terminator's finger touching the ignition of a car. Yep. And the line of the script was that the uh, she uses her Terminator robot powers to start the car. Yep. And we had to build a VFX shot around it. So what were the challenges on a shot like that? I think maybe it was my relative newness to visual effects that I didn't think to keep it simple. Um, I was still bringing my architecture, my urban planning background to it. And so I just went hog wild with this thing, with that line of script. And I did a, a quick mock-up of, uh, of a little animation in Maya of a spark of electricity flowing out from her finger and through the car and uh, treating the engine uh, that the, the wires were going through like a city fly-through like I did back in architecture and then ended on like a on a, on a circuit board to start the uh, the ignition and then the car starts up. How did this go down? What did the director think? The supervisors and the director really, really dug the idea. So I just started going with that. And a, a co-worker went to the dump in San Francisco, the garbage dump for his own art project and found the steering column. And he brought it in for me and put it on my desk. And I was using that as inspiration for the electricity to go through the steering wheel. And uh, we rented the uh, same model as the police car itself in the in the show car. Uh, I think it was a Lincoln Continental. Yep. And parked it outside for the day and popped the hood took a heap of pictures and I started to really um, use the real like images of the carburetor of this police car as, as a skyscraper we flew by and the uh, uh, the fan belt um, and the engine block as, as as the streets that we that we went through um, and for the uh, circuit board at the end I took a motherboard from an obsolete computer that we had at work just sitting there and stripped the resistors off and scanned it and then I did kind of a high pass filter on it to get the isolate the curves of the circuitry. And I converted those into vector paths in Illustrator. And then I modeled and textured the board and the engine and used these vectors as paths to animate the electricity around. Um, and I did, uh, I did the camera motion. I did the, uh, the lighting, the modeling, the texturing, uh, the, the comping. Yep. And to me, this was the epitome of what visual effects is, the reason why I got into it. It was this very successful, very throwaway shot, just about two seconds in a movie. And it took me about you know two, three months to do. 
but it was so satisfying and such an adventure. Yeah. Even though it's, you know, just another sequel uh, <laughs> to a movie, it was one of my favorite experiences of visual effects. If you're a supervising now and someone, a young guy came in and started doing all the stuff that you were doing, two things. One, do you think you would keep it on budget? And two, do you think you would be satisfied with that? Well, first of all, it was very on budget going to the garbage dump and getting a free steering wheel <laughs> and renting the car was it was relatively inexpensive as well. You know, I think it was about $40 to rent the car for half a day. Yeah. But if a if if one of our, my artists came and said they were going to go to the garbage dump and get some reference or said they were going to rent a car to get inspiration for this car shot they were doing, I would be all behind them. Yeah. To find a corollary in real life and work off of that that would show the kind of creativity that I would support. Were you under pressure building the models or did you feel like you were in a good spot building the actual shot? You know, it was a lot of pressure because I was being a generalist doing all of the the steps and parts of the pipeline myself. But on the other hand, it became a passion project for me and for others around me that I went home and I, I would think about how to make the shot better yeah. and come in the morning and do it. And I really looked forward to it every day. When you're at Framestore, what's an interesting project that you worked on? And could you give us like a project description and rundown? Well, when I got hired to move to London and work at Framestore, they couldn't tell me the project it was for. Uh, and when I moved over there and the next day went into the studio, they told me it was for the sequel to Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, which at the time was very um, under wraps and secretive. Um, And that was one of the most educational and interesting projects I've ever worked on in visual effects. After working on sequels that weren't that great, uh, (laughs) The Terminator 3, (laughs) uh, yeah, you weren't to know that possibly The Dark Knight is the best Batman. Yeah, you, ne- you never know, you know, while you're working on it. You know, I've worked on some projects that I thought would probably be big hits, but uh, but they weren't. Yeah. And I've worked on others that I didn't think would really catch on and became giant blockbusters. So it just shows, you know, how much I have my finger on the pulse of, uh, of, the, of the viewers. What do you think of The Dark Knight? Oh, I loved it as a movie. I thought it was great. Um, and I think it's still in the kind of cultural lexicon today. Better than Lego Batman? Well, that's a hard call. You know, it's hard to compete <laughs> ah. against Lego. Could you tell us about the project that you worked on? Uh, and yeah, what did you learn from it? The most valuable lesson I learned from working on that movie with Christopher Nolan as a director was as a visual effects artist, how to be understated and how important that is. How our work is not meant to be front and center always. I was used to uh, creating these visual effects and these shots that you would light from behind and you'd you'd focus on making them, making your effects and your creatures beautiful and visible and all show show off all the hard work that you and your team have done. But on The Dark Knight, working on uh, Two-Face, specifically in this case, what I found was we spent all this time on his shaders, on his textures, on his face, on his creatures, the way the integration with uh, with the actor, Aaron Eckhart, only for the director 
to turn around and say, no, it has to be darker, more in shadow, to the point where you could barely see it. And it was a little bit of a, uh, a struggle to to kind of put all of our work in, in such blackness so that you can just see a gl barely a glimpse of all of our hard work. But looking at the film uh, and the final result, you see that in the lighting, you know, he is meant to be in darkness. It's not about the visual effects. Yeah. The visual effects are just a supporting character, if anything, to the larger cast of the story, of the plot. And learning to put your ego and your sense of your hard work in the back seat to the larger picture is what really made that movie from a visual effects perspective for me so successful. Um, I learned that the, the, the movie as a whole is so much more important than your individual visual effect. And always let your work go into shadow or the background if that's what's called for. I can't go past Christopher Nolan. What was the experience like of actually uh, taking feedback and working with him? Oh, it was great. He is very not interested in visual effects in terms of focusing the, his movie, uh, or at least the viewer's eyes, on that. Yeah. You know, he clearly uses a lot of visual effects in his amazing movies, but the visual effects are not the uh, the important part, and it really gave me a sense of perspective and humbleness, especially having worked now on a, on a bunch of spectacle movies, yeah. um, to really put visual effects in the right place. The model that you didn't get to see much, what was the challenges on that, putting that together? Well, on Two-Face, uh, one of the challenges was actually to make it more appetizing. Uh, the original design was very disgusting and, and gross and scabby and, uh, and almost distracting. So he did have to kind of pull it back a little bit to make it a little bit less uh, viscerally disgusting, which was, <laughs> which was kind, of, uh, kind of cool. You know, it's not, it's not very often where you're asked to you know, reel it back in a little bit. So you were hands on the tools doing that? Yes, I was hands on the tools doing that. I was doing um, lighting, but I was also a generalist. And I also got to help design uh, some of Batman's weapons. Um, okay. So in this Hong Kong sequence in, in that film, he has these things called sticky bombs where he shoots and it uh, sticks to windows and, and blows up. And they had a prop for this, okay. but the director was not very happy with how that turned out. So he asked us to redesign it. And I got tasked with that. So I took a Coke can uh, from the vending machine and I took some scissors and chopped it up and cut it to jagged edges and put some uh, putty on the end of it and smashed it into that and put a stopwatch on the end and uh, created this look of this uh, this bomb that would uh, you know stick to surfaces and got that butt off on by the visual effects director. Yep. And then I remodeled that in Maya and I rigged it and showed how it could move and how it could animate and stick to the wall, got that bot off on and then textured and lit it and uh, it made it into the movie. And I kept this Coke can with this putty on my desk uh, thinking that, you know, I'll, I'll keep this as a little keepsake for my, uh, for my work here on this, on this flick. 
and the next day I come into work and it was gone. And it turns out huh. that the, the cleaning lady must have thought it was a piece <laughs> of garbage on, on my workstation and probably just didn't think twice about throwing it out. You probably would have thrown it out anyway. Yeah, maybe eventually. You probably don't have the circuit board from uh, Terminator. I don't have the original circuit board. I kept that for a while. Huh. Yeah. Being passionate and working on things like the sticky bomb and the Terminator things, did they help you get other jobs? They did. Shortly after that film wrapped, uh, some friends of mine were working down in New Zealand and uh, on, on a movie with some blue aliens on another planet and really encouraged me to join. You know, I talked to, um, to Weta down here and they got back to me and uh, the first thing we talked about was uh, the movie I just wrapped on and they were surprised that these sticky bombs weren't practical effects yeah. and told them a little bit of the process of how I did it and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, so you moved to New Zealand uh, to work at Weta Digital. Uh, what was that experience like? You know, London and Wellington are very similar. They're both major world metropolises. <laughs> uh, it was very, it was very different coming to uh, Wellington uh, after after London. But you know, I've heard so much about how beautiful New Zealand and Wellington are, and it, it doesn't do it justice. I remember when we landed and drove to uh, into town and through Evans Bay, and just breathtaking. And still, I have to just take a take a moment most days and just appreciate it. It's amazing to work in like such high-end technology, but to be sounded, surrounded by nature. It is. It is. It's a, you know, the only, if, if it wasn't so far away from the rest of my uh, family in, uh, in America, it would be absolutely perfect. You work in the VES. I think you're a, are you a co-chair in the VES? Yeah, I have been uh, uh, on the board of the VES uh, New Zealand, and I've been very active. And what's the social community like and the mentoring sort of side of that? Oh, it's great. Uh, one of the events that I would put on regularly, something I called Tech Talks, uh, originally Tequila Talks of like tech and tequila of, yeah. I'd invite all these different artists and, and innovators to uh, speak at a local bar, um, La Boca Loca, over drinks and give presentations on everything from concept art uh, to furniture design. I invited uh, astrobiologists and even an astronaut once from NASA to give uh, short uh, presentations um, based on the uh, Pecha Kucha model of slideshows um, and then having a Q&A after yeah. and then a little social gathering. And it just became kind of this, this very popular uh, Wellington event. And do you think that doing professional development outside work, networking and learning about stuff uh, is important to developing your career? I do. I think that you can't especially in film or I suppose any industry, you can't be all about the tools or all about your one discipline. I think uh, in any creative art, you want to bring other experiences into it and you want to learn about other people's um, experiences. So I think certainly. I know you've worked with a lot of animals. Talk specifically about dogs. What are the challenges you face and what are the best ways to sort of, you know, make a realistic dog and yeah, give a personality and all the things that it needs. Dogs are a great example of creatures to do in, that are hard to do in visual effects. We all know what dogs look like. Yeah. We all have a good idea of how they behave, but their fur and their 
facial expressions and their emotions are very hard and very complex to recreate. You know, humanoid facial expressions don't map directly uh, to dogs yeah. because dogs emote and express with their tails a lot, with their ears, yeah. with their with their legs. And uh, for for fur, you know, we've studied and I've studied over time in depth of the way that dog fur in particular clumps together. It's almost like uh, they clump together in clumps of clumps, like meta clumps. Okay. And the way that light rays, at least in visual effects renderers, can get uh, can get trapped in between these strands of fur, and the way that light travels through the subsurface of fur. So it's a perfect example of almost like this uncanny, or I joke about it, like when I've done dogs, uh, uncanine valley, where you, <laughs> dad, yes, dad joke, that is funny. Uh, where. Um, the average viewer won't be able to tell you what's wrong with a dog that doesn't look real, but every viewer will know if the dog isn't real. How do you start off the process of like making it real? Is it the way you start off is by looking at real dogs? Yeah. Even if you're making a talking dog, hypothetically, you know you're you look at real dogs. You look at their uh, their range of motion and their facial expressions, um, and you try and map facial expressions with in in uh, in a dog ears yeah. and a tail. Um, you work on the uh, the range of motion with fur. Uh, one thing I've learned working with dogs and some animals is you can't expect to work with the the creature without the fur. You can't just add the fur at the end because the fur changes the volume. It changes the silhouette, the way it moves. It changes the expression and the weight of it. The economy of the fur changes the uh, how expensive the renders are, how long they, they take to render, and how complicated they are to rig and the shaders to light. You did vampire dogs at one stage, is that correct? <laughs> did, I did. I almost forgot about that. I had, um, on a movie called Blade Trinity. That's in a sequel again? Of course, it's a sequel. It's my special. Ah! <laughs> I, I actually, I, I should... The original Blade was good. Like... Yeah, it was. That's why they needed two more. And th- I didn't know there was a sequel. There's, there were two sequels. Wow. Coming to America. Yeah. <laughs> Coming to America, I think. Did you work on that? I did not. No, no, no. What do you think of that sequel? Um, you know, the first half that I made through was great. Very disappointing, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love the first one. All righty. Back to, back to Blade. Blade Trinity uh, called for vampire dogs, which was pretty fascinating to work on. Uh, two vampire Rottweilers and a vampire Pomeranian. And uh, their jaws open up, release, uh, revealing these fangs and these and this drool. So you were modeling the dogs. What what was your role? I was helping to model the dogs and to light the dogs and shade them, and do the drool. And did you come up with any things that you now use now? Any techniques that you thought were pretty solid? I think one thing we did, which is pretty common now, is using a string rig for the drool. Yeah. Um, that is pretty common now taking we actually took some dental uh reliefs of the dog's teeth yep. in order to recreate those even more yeah and i don't think we did anything uh groundbreaking on blade trinity uh shockingly huh. in terms of visual effects except for i i've never seen vampire dogs done before so i think we did sort of maybe break into that new territory what's a pomeranian look like a pomeranian it's sort of like a chihuahua with longer hair Sounds pretty cool. So 
when you move up into management and you start communicating with the clients and you work with people like Christopher Nolan, how do you go about approaching them and communicating with them? And, you know, is it any different to just talking to anyone else? One important lesson is that less is more yep. and knowing when to be quiet and to show and not tell. I find that directors tend to not be as interested in the methods that you're using as they are in the results. Yeah. If the results are successful, they'll be interested in learning more about the methods, but they're less interested in hearing about what tools you're going to use or how you're going to execute this as opposed to showing them. So when you're dealing with the client, that's where the rubber hits the road in visual effects, so to speak. And the creative process stops being academic and starts being practical. In other words, you could talk till you're blue in the face about your renderer or the benefits of ZBrush versus Mudbox. But if it looks like shit, yeah. the director and the producer won't really care about any of that. Yeah, so I was talking to a, like a creature developer uh, who worked with both Spielberg and James Cameron. And he talked about the differences between working with the two. When you're working with a director, how do you establish what they're after? His example was is that James Cameron, I think, was all about like how does it work sort of thing. Yeah, I think he's probably an, an outlier in many ways. <laughs> he certainly is. <laughs> so when you meet someone like James Cameron, like how do you build the relationship to sort of know what he wants as a brief? Because often you get written notes, but there's more than that. I find that um, having been through this process a few times and seeing some amazing visual effects supervisors manage these relationships, there's a couple of things that I've learned. Uh, one I've learned is it's important to read the room and build rapport and trust with the director yeah. and to become more of a collaborator yeah. than a vendor. The most successful relationships that I've been fortunate enough to be in the room with is where you've built enough trust by establishing early on that you get it, that you're not just listening to what the director and, and the client are, are saying, their words, but you are seeing where they're looking. And the way you show that is by giving them not only what they asked for, but you're giving them exactly what they needed. And that's a very hard skill to have. For a very long time, you worked as a CG supervisor, and more recently, you've moved into VFX supervising. Yes. Can you explain how the relationship works between the VFX supervisor and the other supervisors? And can you explain when you were CG supervising uh, how you related and worked with the VFX soup. The way that I look at the differentiation between the roles is that the visual effects supervisor and through extension, through him or her, the director, determine the what and the why of what you're doing on a show, uh, what this creature is, why this creature is uh, behaving this way for the plot. And the producer, on the other hand, there is working on the um, uh, the when and the who. Um, when is the shot due? When is the show deadline? Uh, who's crewed and resourced to work on it? Yeah. But when it comes to the how, 
you're going to do any of that. That's what I do. Uh, so taking all that into consideration, how is the creature going to be rigged yeah. to perform this with these tentacles? Um, uh, how are we going to render and create this fur? Um, how are we going to build a new workflow for this sort of uh, um, effect, complicated effect that we've never done before? That's what I do. So back when you were CG supervising, were you in the meetings with the director or does the VFX supervisor go to those meetings and then you he reports to you? No, I'm in those meetings. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be in there. Uh, I have to know the context of what's being asked and what we need to do and how to execute them. And most of those meetings, are they online or do you do them in person? Most of those in uh, down here are online, especially with uh, COVID, uh, most things are remote. So before you started VFX supervising um, and you were CG souping, what were you looking for uh, to get from your VFX supervisor? Like what are the key points that you want to get from the brief that he's, he's putting forward to you? What I generally want to get is the broad vision and the direction of where we want to go. Yeah. Um, I want to get as much um, constraints as we can um, so we know where the ship is heading. And then from there, uh, take it and, um, and be able to fill in those spaces that uh, weren't clearly defined with creativity from the artists. Okay. So you want to try and balance the direction from the director and the visual effects supervisor with some creative freedom that your team can express themselves in. Before you go to one of these meetings, is there anything that you do? Do you prepare? You prepare extensively. You know exactly what's being discussed. Um, and sometimes you're called upon to give an answer to the director or the producer immediately. And, you know, it's, uh, you never want to say you don't know, but you can say, I'll find out. Yeah. And you, you have to be on the ball and present and know what the issues are. What do you think the biggest beginner's mistake you would make in these high-level meetings? I'd say, you know, in, in service industries, they, at least in America, right, they say the customer is always right. And obviously everyone knows that that's not a true fact. But, uh, you know, when you're dealing with a director, in a sense, they're always right. Right, and because like you're trying to achieve their vision, yeah. Which isn't to say that you know you can't show them something that maybe they weren't expecting, or something that I that you think can uh, can get you, or can will make them much more happy, or or uh, fulfill their request. Yeah. But I think the biggest mistake is litigating, and I've seen this a lot. What I mean is, if you find yourself with a client or a director litigating and what by that I mean uh, defending something that they're you're both looking at and trying to talk them into liking it yeah you've lost yeah already uh, the creative argument what you need to do is to listen and to show what your idea is this sort of leads me to the other end which is when you present your ideas, how do you sell those ideas? What's the best way of 
I always personally, I always give a preamble and show some things and sort of build them into it, and then I, and then I show them, uh, and I generally try to do all that stuff in person uh, or these days online. Uh, so how do you go about like that's on a in commercials, which is a lot different to long form. But how do you go about this stuff? The best way to do it. Um, and you can't do this just in the span of one meeting, is you have to have already built up the relationship of trust. I find that the most interesting communications and back and forths I've seen, sometimes even on the other side of the call with the director, with his own editors and own producers and PAs, that you see people that uh, sometimes you might think are not high enough level to be talking to the director like this. But what I find wh- that makes those moments successful is when these people, no matter what level they are, and I see this more with the highest level people I've seen, talk in terms of not their own ego, in terms of their own taste but and their own needs, but in terms of what the show needs, what the shot needs. Yeah. Um, what the movie needs, what will help the movie, this character. And when you talk like that and you, you, you're you more likely to get buy-in from the director and the producer, you're talking about what the movie needs to make it better. Yeah. You're not talking about what you need and what your personal vision to you know compete with the director somehow. You're going to lose that argument 10 times out of 10. But if you talk about... Well, here's clearly what this uh, what this bird needs to be to look like a better bird. You know, that's something that might be hard to really argue or against. You know, because really you're talking about what needs to happen to make it work. So now I want to talk about. Uh, so you call them dailies. Say so dailies pretty much cover all creative reviews. Is they like when you're near at the end, very end of the shot, and you got everyone there? Is that dailies or is dailies just the team? Well, there, it's semantic, and different studios will do different things. There's dailies, there's rounds, there's catch-ups, there's check-ins. You know, there's all sorts of semantic things. But dailies is essentially or rounds uh, when you get a group of the team together and look at shots and review them. Uh, when you're working with your team, what are you trying to achieve in dailies, and how do you prepare for them? Some supervisors I know explicitly like not to prepare in order to focus on their gut reactions to the work, but I I respect that, um, but I don't do that. I try and look at the playlist of all the work under discussion before the meeting and curate it into my own playlist and and mark my own gut reaction to each submission uh, because I feel that there's this tension that you have to manage as a supervisor. On one hand, you have to look at each shot, keep it in mind that this is a shot, average shot, it might be about 20 frames, you know, less than a second these days. That will be less than a second in the span of a two-hour movie. Yeah. If you think about it like that, it's just a flash in the pan. Yeah. And you have to keep in mind that that's how this will be ingested, ultimately, as a final product. On the other hand... You have to put on your slower analytical thinking hat and look at it in terms of, is the creature right? Does he have the right palette? Does he have the right shader? Does he have the right motion? Is he is the lighting direction on? Is the weight right on the character? Is the composition of the frame right? You know, um, you're looking at it like animation, like art, uh, as a frame, as a moving picture. 
And I think you have to manage that tension between the two of them and think in terms of the final product, which will flash by in a pan. And then you have to look at it with the analytical hat to make it as perfect as you can. You, you prepare, you look at the things and you do you write down feedback for yourself and then pass on the notes or do you change the notes uh, at the meeting? Oh, well, I'll be glad to change the notes at the meeting. You know, um, I always mark in sometimes in my mind, but I usually write a little note or like a sentence uh, before each one on, on each group of shots or each shot sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but I always mark my initial reaction. Does it feel right? Does it feel too warm, too cool? And if you're an artist and you're preparing your stuff for dailies, what are the things that you should be like trying to hit? Well, as an artist, uh, you want to be sure that you're hitting the notes. Yeah. What you want to do is you want to show and be clear of what notes you've hit and what you have yet to hit. You don't want to keep showing the same thing every day and having to answer the question of what am I looking at? What's different here? Yeah. But ideally what you're doing at an art as an artist is you're doing all that and then some. What you're doing is is hitting and achieving all of the notes and then showing your own ideas on top of that. You're pitching your own ideas to make it even better. Okay. And I've often seen or I've rarely seen visual effects supervisors or directors unhappy to see better ideas. Okay. Both as an artist and as a supervisor, what are the main things you can do as a supervisor to add value to a shot? I think the best things you could do to add value to a shot is not doing the bare minimum and thinking in terms of the difference between, in, let's say in terms of lighting, uh, between photoreal and film reel. There's also a tension there. I think uh, if you're focused so much on photoreal, you're going to look at the practical lights in the scene, match those, which is very important. Don't get me wrong. Match the context of the scene. But to go above and beyond, to be film reel, think about where is your eye supposed to go? Um, where does the shot sit in the context of the EDL? Uh, what can you do to, uh, to tell the story a little bit better? to help move the uh, image across. Every shot is a, is a little short story. Okay. And every aspect from the model to the, to the creature, to the animation, to the lighting, to the compositing helps tell that story. I think the last 10% of reality is the hardest bit. What do you, how do you get them to get over that line in that area? The last 10% or, you know, sometimes I think of it as the last 2% are, I totally agree, the hardest part. You know, you've, you've matched the, the plate. You've matched the temperature of, of the lighting. You've done the creative lighting. You, you know, it's, it's comped in right. But the last 10% are often um, two things, like they're technical in terms of edges and blacks and QC level uh, pixel fucking, so to speak, yeah. um, part of my language. Ah. But, the, but, the, uh, but the other the other two to 5% of that last 10% are emotional. Yeah. You know, like it doesn't feel right. You know, there's the uncanny valley in people, but there's also a kind of an uncanny valley in lighting and, and compositions where sometimes, and an uncanine valley. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to coin that. But um, uh, sometimes something just doesn't feel right. And it's, it's often hard to put your finger on it. Maybe it's the way that uh, a leaf in the effects sim is falling straight down and all it just needs to do is move a little bit you know those are the trickiest parts 
And if you're unhappy with something, do you show it to the director if you need to? One lesson I've learned is you never show anything to the director unless you're specifically trying to get the answer to a question. So you don't show something just to show it. And I think it's okay to show something if it's not perfect, yeah. if there's a larger question to be answered. You know, maybe your um, uh, your your render pass is is not final resolution, uh, but you can caveat that and have the director look past that because you're really trying to see is this the environment and the camera angle that you want the shot to take place in. Yeah. So I think as long as you're always asking a direct question, which each shot you're showing to the client it's okay to show uh, it for feedback as long as you're not saying it's the final product. And what's the biggest mistake that artists make when presenting their stuff in dailies? Um, taking notes personally yeah, is what I found. Um, the notes are not personal, very rarely, I should say. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I respect and I've been there and I, I get how you get attached to your shot and your lighting or your, your comping, um, your, your animation a lot, but you have to take your notes in stride because uh, the artist is often playing the ground game, is in there on the box, working on their shot, doing the best work they can. The supervisors are more of the air game, looking how everything is relating to each other into the bigger picture, you know, the forest versus the trees. And how do you keep them motivated? Like when they're doing revision after revision, what do you do as a like leader to, you know, keep that process going? Since my wife owns an ice cream company, sometimes I bring in um, ice cream huh. to, uh, <laughs> and I'm not kidding, I really do. But uh, no, but seriously, uh, the best way I find to motivate people is to enable or to establish ownership by the artists of their shots, to have them buy in yeah. to the vision and by pointing them in the right direction and to show them the way, the as best you can, the be the way that you see the show, um, and how each shot goes towards the greater whole, I think that motivates them to look at the bigger picture. In short form stuff, commercials and things, revisions often make it better. Mm -hmm. Like majority of the time, you do more work, it gets better. Is that the same in long form? Yes, iterations are very important. I think that uh, the concept of iterations and time to first pixel, uh, what that means in lighting is uh, how long it takes when you click a button to when you get the first uh, remnant of an image back. And I think the less iterations you can get in a day or a week, the slower your creative process will be. You've been relaxed and pretty lighthearted in this interview so far. Do you use much comedy uh, and what do you do to make things relaxed in meetings? I think it's actually very important to establish in the beginning of a, of a meeting, especially a serious meeting, yeah. to take the temperature down. And it's very performative, you know, it, realistically, a lot of times running large meetings. And it's almost like giving a best man speech yeah. at a wedding. You know, it's best to start off with a joke. It's best to lighten it up early on okay. to just lower the bar, lower the temperature so you can talk about more serious things. So when it's really busy like and you're in crunch time, what do you focus on to deliver 
and keep everyone sane and have decent balance? You can't manage everybody else's work-life balance. One thing in terms of work you could do is lead by example is not staying until 10 o'clock at night. If they see me leaving early, they're more likely to let themselves leave early. Yeah. And I've I've been there as as an artist and you know you get to a point sometimes in a show or your middle of beginning of your career when you almost don't even care if you're getting paid, which is ridiculous to say, but I think a lot of people know what I mean, where you will stay until midnight till 2 in the morning to get that shot out. It doesn't matter. You know, but if they see the visual effects supervisor, the CG supervisor leaving early and being clear that that's okay, it can wait till tomorrow. They're more likely to do that too, and then you can avoid the whole law of diminishing returns. And okay. you know, and and it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. I say that all the time, and I do too. It, it's funny that uh, when I was working for other people, like which is basically even when I had my own studio, I was working for the client. And now, uh, like, I, I would always work for nothing. Like, money did never, has never interested me. Which is me. not a good thing to do at work, you know. We, all, we both know that instinctually and, and intellectually. Oh, it's not a good thing, but I feel so much better about doing it now in the work that I'm doing around, say, the podcast and the events and things mm-hmm. because it's for me. Yeah. That's actually giving to the community, but for selfish reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Like what I've noticed is is that there isn't many people over 40 working in production, hands on the tools. Would you say that's a fact? And why do you think that is? Well, I think there are more and more now. I think the reality of it is that visual effects is just starting to become an adolescent industry. I think when I started, there were no college courses in visual effects. Everybody I knew when I started out came from everything from uh, from astrophysics and rocket science to forestry. Yeah, and you know, and it was fascinating what everybody came out with. Now, these days, a lot the majority of new visual effects artists have studied a discipline already, like character motion or or compositing, or sometimes even a tool like Maya. So I think that there are more people over the age of forty now. Uh, than there were because we are all growing up with the industry. But are they on the floor or are they teaching? Are they uh, managing? A little bit of both. You know, uh, most, yeah, a lot of us are managing these days. Um, but yeah, I, th- I do see artists uh, over 40 on the box too. Okay. Because I always, it's like, I've asked other people about this and I just wonder if the industry's too hardcore. For people to do with families, it can be, but I think generally um, there's more of a wellness approach and a, uh, a health and safety approach. You know, in many disciplines, many many fields, including visual effects, yeah. where you know you're trying not to burn yourself out or burn your employees out. Well, I do think it has improved. Like I remember when I first started out, it was insane. But yeah, what people tell me now in the industry, like things have got a lot better. People are talking about this stuff all the time and just the pure passion of young people trying to do work can lead to, you know, just unsustainable work yep, hours. I know it. Um, so when when the crew is under pressure and you're pushing towards a deadline, what do you do to keep things calm and relaxed? Do you mean besides the ice cream that I bring in? <laughs> 
Yeah, so it's the same sort of question. Um, well, one thing I like to do is uh, have them uh, have a rotating delivery of presentations of their successes and discoveries on the show that are sometimes recorded for posterity for future shows and to also in, uh, encourage ownership and uh, be able to share their successes. Yeah. A lot of times these artists, when they are in the middle of the crunch, they're doing it also with a sense of passion. And it helps for them to be able to show it and share it. What do you do to like be more balanced and not let the creative passion take over your life? I try and push myself in other ways. I do outside of work. I do um, ultra marathons and um, and adventure races. And I try to push my body and my mind to a different kind of um, extreme. A long time ago before I got old. And <laughs> I, I used to run and I used to run like long distances. And there was a point where I stopped thinking about work. It was about mm-hmm. 3K in. And I started, I was just intensely in the moment of running. Uh, living in the moment, do you achieve that when you're doing your sports? I do. Um, you have to. And that's what I love about it. And there's this almost contradiction where you are living in the moment when you get to a certain point of these endurance races where you have to be aware they're out on the trail of, you know, of your, your body and your hunger and your water needs and your, your pains, yeah. where you're going, orienteering. You have to be there. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to get out of there <laughs> without a helicopter. Um, but on the other side of things, I also look at it as a metaphor for my uh, for for the way I look at life and work, you know. Um, and I apply these lessons that I've done on these races to my life and to the way that I work. So basically, there you're doing a lot of exercise. How long have you been doing this for to keep fit? I mean, I've been doing it most of my life, but I've started to push it further and further in the last few years. Like I've been doing this race the last two years called the Coast to Coast, which is this 250 kilometer race over two days uh, from one side of New Zealand to the other, uh, running, biking, and kayaking. And that's been taking a lot of training. And I did it this the last two years, and I just did it this year in like 18 hours and 11 seconds, not that I'm counting. It just embarrassed me that we're the same age and I can't run to the end of the street. Well, maybe you need to be chased. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so have you got your drink there? Yep. You were studying to be a doctor at one stage, is that correct? Yes, originally, yes. My father was a doctor and my mom's a nurse, so that's when I grew up, they, were, they told me I could be any kind of doctor I wanted to be. And do you think they were balanced? They were, absolutely. You know, my dad played tennis and golf and so did my mom. You know, they had very active social lives and they, they worked hard and played hard. And I think that's, uh, that's still my role model today. And do you think that being in the moment is important to you? It is. I, I, I do think it is important to be in the moment as much as you can. Because that's the hardest thing that I face is I'm switched on to work and then I can't switch it off. Yep. Uh, and that means that I'm not only working 70 hours a week when I'm at my busiest, I'm also working after that, uh, just in my mind. Mm-hmm. I've put in policies of what I do because I, I struggle with work-life balance, but what I've done is I've, I'm going to have eight to ten weeks holiday a year, and I do that, and I'm coming up to a six-week break 
in December. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so basically each year I've had six weeks and, and what that does is it means that I can, the stuff that I'm missing out on, the family stuff, I can get that back, you know, go spend time with my kids and, and, and if you have a big break, it really helps you switch all that stuff off. You come back, you don't know where you started, where you left, you know. Anything else that you do for your balance? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm also an illustrator and a cartoonist, so I I do a lot of drawings. I do the illustrations for my wife's ice cream, and I also brew my own beer. Cool. All righty. Sounds like a good place to work over there in New Zealand. You <laughs> eat ice cream and brewing beer, and it's not so bad. Making sequels. Making sequels. <laughs> uh, is there a sequel that's better than the original? Well, it's a shame you didn't work on Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 I'd say is the ultimate best sequel. Aliens. Aliens. Is, uh, oh, is, that's yeah. that's a tough call. It's a tough one. It's it's a divisive opinion. I acknowledge that. It's a shame movies aren't like that anymore. Why isn't there movies like that anymore? Oh God, I said that. Well, those Alien and Aliens are two of my favorite movies. They're so different. You didn't work on any of the sequels. Three and four. <laughs> no, no, surprisingly. Uh, surprisingly. Um, although Blue Sky worked on Alien 3 right before I got there. So I just missed out on that sequel. If you could go back to the start of your career, what advice would you give yourself? I'd say be patient. You know, life is short, uh, but there's plenty of time. And like we were talking about, be present. In the future, what would you like to work on? I've been enjoying working on some TV stuff like streaming, long-form storytelling. Film-wise, work-wise, I'd be keen on doing some more interpretive and left-field creative uses of visual effects of of, uh, of established things like, like Spider-Verse. I thought that was very interesting. But outside of visual effects, I'd like to you know, do some editorial cartoons for maybe some local newspaper about obscure political issues. Oh, cool. Alrighty. Well, I think that's a great place to finish up. Wow, that flew by. Yeah. I've really appreciated you uh, diving deep into all these topics. And thanks very much for spending the time and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. It's been a real honor and pleasure to be here, Matthew. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. And don't forget to become part of our jobs network if you're looking for a better job in Australia or New Zealand. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week.